you are an entrepreneur, a professional, a speaker, or a coach, and although you've come a long way, it's time for you to take it to the next level. We've got you. This is the Author to Authority Podcast. We'll help you use authority and influencer marketing to build your business stronger and faster by publishing a book. You'll hear from guests that are thought leaders in sales, marketing, networking, communication, social media, promotion, and business leadership. Let's do it. This is the Author to Authority Podcast. And now your host, the extraordinary word ninja, Kim Thompson Pinder. Welcome to the Author to Authority podcast. And today, I love the topic of today's conversation. And and we're going to be speaking with Ernie Martin today. But just a quick thing before I introduce you. Ernie, I wish that we could have had this conversation about seven years ago. But today, we're talking about marketing for solopreneurs. And it is an important topic because how small, mid, and large-sized businesses market is completely different than from what a solopreneur can do. Absolutely. So I'm excited for today's conversation. Now, Ernie Martin is a seasoned marketing and communications professional. He's the author of Nobody Cares About Your Business, the universal eight marketing principles every entrepreneur must know to make their customers love their business. He has an impressive career spanning over 30 years, and Ernie has earned a reputation for excellence in this field. Welcome to the show, Ernie. Yes, Kim, thank you for for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I could talk about this stuff all day long. People have to shut me up, okay? So I love the topic. So thank you very much for, for inviting me to be on your show. Oh, you're so very welcome. Ernie, this is your first time on the Author to Authority podcast. So I would love for you to share just for, you know, maybe five minutes or so, seven minutes, on sort of your business story, like how did how did you even get into marketing and and where are you at now and and who are you loving to serve? Yeah, yeah, excellent, excellent question. So I think it goes back to wanting to be an architect since I was seven, and so I, my parents took us to New York City, and I fell in love with the buildings, and I've always been creative. So I said I want to be an architect. So from seven to 18 years old, I just knew in my heart I was going to be an architect and I would have my own architecture firm. But for some reason, that's another conversation. I changed my major before I got to college to psychology and (laughs) majored in psychology for two years and hated every millisecond of it. And I thought after two years, what do I want to do? Do I want to go back and start from scratch at architecture school or do I want to do something else? And I had to think about what I really loved and what I really enjoyed. I loved advertising. I loved marketing. I loved communications. And I just had a knack for it because some of my friends who were running for SGA president would ask me, hey, can you run my campaign? Because I just had this knack for it. And I thought maybe that's what I should go into. And so once I made the change to marketing, it just, everything took off. I was like a sponge. I just absorbed everything. I did as many internships as I can. At one point I was going to school full time, had two internships at the same time while (laughs) while still going to school. And it was, it was great. For punishment, right? I was, but I loved, I made what you would call my, I can be a very meticulous scheduler in terms of 
there are days when I get up at four and I get so much done in the first several hours of the day. And yes. so I can fit a lot into a single day and do it again the next day and the next day and the next day. I just have to meticulously plan it. And I learned to do that when I was in school. So that started my career in marketing. I'm a Xavier University of Louisiana graduate. And so they did a great job. Even it's known for pharmacy, but in business, they're, they're, they're great for bringing companies in to recruit. And so I had a job before I even graduated in New Jersey working for a bank holding company in the advertising department, eventually moved into the communications department, learned desktop publishing, handled everything from the company's first internal newsletter, um, press releases, annual and quarterly reports, writing and designing. And so I moved from New Jersey to Atlanta in 92. And that sort of tells you a little bit of how old I am. So, and one of the reasons- You're close to the same age. Okay, well, probably, probably. So I moved to Atlanta because a couple of reasons. One, the Olympics were coming. And number two, I understood Atlanta to be very welcoming to transplants. And I eventually wanted to start my own business, whatever that was going to be. Mm-hmm. And so I worked for a number of companies, worked for Georgia Pacific, worked for Delta Airlines. And then I started my first business in 2003. So from 2003 to 2008, ran my own marketing communications company, and it's basically an agency. And I was a solopreneur. That was my first foray into being a solopreneur where I had to do everything myself. You know, when you have a job, when you have a job, you don't have to worry about the accounting. You just do your job and that's it. You don't have to worry about the trash being taken out, company insurance. You don't have to worry about taxes on the company or anything like that. You just do your job and then you go home. Well, and get a paycheck. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, the interesting thing about that, Kim, is regardless of whether you work hard or whether you slack off a little bit one week, you still get the same paycheck for the most part for most mm-hmm. jobs. It's not the case with most solopreneurs because yes. the the revenue that you generate is directly tied to your effort that you put into it. Now, obviously, there are yeah. things people get breaks and, you know, people get, quote unquote, lucky. But I've always seen luck as preparation meet meeting opportunity opportunity one of my favorite quotes absolutely absolutely so so did the solopreneur thing i did hire contractors to help with a number of things so i started off doing website development myself and then eventually i hired contractors to do it for me for my clients Uh, and so at the high at the beginning of the recession i left that and was given an offer I couldn't refuse for my next employer where I was global director of marketing for for suppliers for this one company headquartered in, in London. So I got a chance to travel all around the world. It was great. It was wonderful. And then had an epiphany based on some work that I was doing at the company. And I thought this would make a great business, but I didn't want to start another business. And eventually, after a year of cultivating the idea and creating a business plan, I thought there is no way I can't start this business. So I left that company in 2014, started my current company, Receivable Savvy, in 2015. And so I've been doing that ever since. That started out as, you know, starting out as as a solopreneur, and I was the only one I was doing everything. But since then, I've got some some help. So, but it's it's really a challenge being a solopreneur because you have to do everything. You have to do everything well. So that's therein lies the challenge. It was funny, like. I'm still in many senses a solopreneur, even though 
you know, I run a full scale publishing company because most of my team are contractors and works really well. But you are right. Like I wear many, many, many hats. I'm the salesperson. Yes. I'm the accountant. Mm -hmm. I, you know, thankfully I don't manage all the book projects. I did find someone who would manage all the projects for me. Good. Uh, You know, but this podcast, I I work on this podcast. I don't do all the work on the podcast, but I work on this podcast. Right. And, and the marketing and, you know, all these things that you want to do. And yet there's only so many hours in a day. And you still have to have time to sleep and spend time with family because what's the use of doing this business Mm -hmm. for time and money freedom if you never see your family? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's a challenge and that time becomes a premium. And but it's something that and you've you faced this because you said you did. And I've certainly faced this and others have faced this, too, where because you have to do so many things and you have to wear so many hats, there are certain things you don't have. Well, there are certain things you have to try to make time for, and that's family. You know, if you're married, your spouse, et cetera, friends, a little, a little bit of downtime if you can afford to do that, which I think is very important. Uh, the one thing that we can't afford, though, and this is speaking from experience, typically a very positive, upbeat person anyway. But and in my book, I write one of the chapters is, should you even be an entrepreneur? You know, because there are yeah. a lot of who want to start their own business, be a solopreneur, do their own thing. And the question is, should you even want to do that? Because entrepreneurs, especially solopreneurs, are made of, they exhibit certain characteristics. And one of those characteristics is lack of fear. Okay. You may be afraid of things. Things may be fearful, but you are able to navigate through that and keep going. So one of the things we can't afford to do is we can't afford to get down in the doldrums because if we do, then things wouldn't get done. And then, you know, if we're feeling sorry for ourselves, why didn't this happen the way I thought it would happen? And then the next thing you know, you don't have a business. The next thing you know, you're exactly. going, you're looking for another job and you're starting where you, you're back to where you started from. So I think it's synonymous solopreneurs and the characteristics of an entrepreneur. You've got to manage fear properly. And some people can do that very well. Some people can manage fear, have a lot of things going on where may appear fearful and still get a good night's sleep. Other people come apart when when fearful things happen and they can't sleep and then everything falls apart. The other thing is having courage. You've got to have courage. You've got to be willing to, hey, there's, you know, the, the old saying, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And so you you have something here, but you see that there's something over there that is even more enticing. And if you build a strategy that allows you to go from point A to point B, that means you may have to let go of a couple of things. And that's fearful to some people. Yeah. And so having that courage is, is, is a necessity when you're a solopreneur and an entrepreneur. Also, having some creativity is mm-hmm. incredibly important. The entrepreneurs that I've spoken with, there are some who are just very creative. Some of them have started businesses, enterprises, grown them significantly. Others get stuck in their fear or lack of creativity. And if someone has another idea, hey, what about this idea? What about that idea? They're fearful and they lack creativity. So they end up not doing anything. Okay. And so that tends to hamstring a lot of entrepreneurs and solopreneurs as well. So, and then you've got to be able to, I think, I think, I'm good at this. Some people are good at it. Some people are not. 
I think I've always been good at balancing left brain, right brain. So there's the logical planning, meticulous side of me that gets to be somewhat obsessive. And then there's the creativity part of me, because as you can see with the guitars in the background, I'm, I also write music and I play guitars. There's a creative side to me. And I'm very grateful for that ability to balance both. Oh, <laughs> I got a Good keyboard in my office. Keyboard in my office. Excellent. Excellent. No, that's great. That's great. So I'm you, actually going to stop you there for a sec, Ernie, because I wanted to, to just make a couple of comments here, because there was a yeah. few things that you said that I think are just little nuggets that if people grab on to them, you know, one of the things you talked about was getting up early in the morning. Now, I realize that not everyone is a morning person. Right. So you might have to do the reverse. Maybe you're the one who stays up half of the night and does stuff. Sure. Sure. But. I am an early morning person. And if I get up at five o'clock and I start working, I can get more done between five and nine than I can usually get done between nine and 12. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, so I think that, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It's understanding your, your body's rhythms, right? And, and what works best. Because if you're a night hawk and you're trying to get up at five o'clock in the morning, that is not going to be your productive time of the day. Right. Right. And different things work for different people. I, I ended up getting realizing that I'm a morning person by accident. The first job I had out of college, <laughs> the reason why I started getting up early and I realized, hey, there's something to this is I was trying to get to the company gym and use the, the best bike they had in the company gym. And I was getting there at six and another person started getting there at 550. So I said, I'm going to get there at 540. And so we kept going back and forth. And so I said, I'm just going to nip this in the bud. I'm going to get up at four. I'm going to go and I know she's not going to be there. And that was the case. She was not there. So by the time I was done, then she was coming in and I realized, boy, I, I would get up at four, go to the gym, work out, be in the office by six 30 in the same building. And I got so much done. I realized there's, there's something to this. And so I didn't, I didn't start off planning to do that. It just happened by accident. But I realized, like you said, if I get up at four and I have, this is my home office. I have an external office. And if I go to that office at 4.30, 5 o'clock, by the time 11 o'clock rolls, rolls around, I've done six straight hours of just plowing through stuff. And I'm more, I'm significantly um, better equipped and organized and productive if I do that than if I stayed in, my, in this office and started working from 8 until 5 or 6. Much more productive yeah. if I get up early. So yeah. we have that in common. The other thing that you said that I think people need to understand is the word courage. Hmm. See, people, I think people tend to think that courage is this thing where you don't, you're not afraid. But courage is the exact opposite. Courage is, is you feel the fear, but you make a choice. You choose yeah. to yeah. do it anyway. And I yeah. think that's, that is critical as an entrepreneur. Because, yeah, there's going to be stuff flying at you. There's new things you've got to learn. You've got to incorporate new ideas. You have to be open to new ideas. You have to be willing. You have to be willing to fail. Absolutely. You have to be willing to fail your way forward sometimes. Now, it's not always that way, but there are times when you fail your way forward. And courage is that ability to look at it, know that you could possibly fail. Yes. And you do it anyway. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you're right. It's courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is 
being able to properly deal with fear and put it in its proper place. Fear is a natural occurrence and it, it's, it's healthy. Actually, yeah. if, if no one had any fear, that's actually a dangerous life to lead. If you have no fear whatsoever, that means you might yeah. fall off a cliff because you have no fear. But fear is a is a helpful, natural, God-given mechanism in all humans. It's just you have to determine whether or not you're going to succumb to the fear or you're going to work through whatever issue you're dealing with in spite of the fear. And that's 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 a learned for most people. That's a learned thing. That's a learned capability. And I had to learn that. And you have to learn it by being in it. Exactly. You have to actually go through it. There's no yeah. seminar you can go to to learn it. You have you, to you can't conquer fear unless you conquer fear. Like there, yeah. there, people can tell you what to do, but you have to take that step. Like there's nothing that anybody can train you. You just ultimately have to make the choice you're going to do it. Exactly. Feel the fear and do it anyway. So I just want to bring up one more point, and then I want to let you lose because we're losing time here, and I want to let you yes. lose to do your training session. The other thing you talked about was the importance of time, downtime, and with your family and that. And I learned that one the hard way. September of 2020, and if you've listened to the podcast, you've heard the story, I ended up in emergency three times over between September 2020 and April 2021 in AFib. My heart was going like 160, 170 beats per minute. The top Mm. was beating differently than the bottom. That was scary. And they started to do like they did all the tests and everything. They figured out I had high blood pressure and they looked at me and he said, they're like, Kim, there's nothing wrong with your heart. So the only thing we can figure out is it's stress. So talk about a wake up call from God. I said, okay, that means that I need to now structure my life differently. I started taking lunch breaks almost pretty well every day. There's occasional day, but almost every day I stop for an hour. I don't do any work. I'll have my lunch. I'll read, maybe watch a TV show. Uh, I like to craft. I'll maybe craft, but I stop for an hour to have that lunch. And like right now where I am, it's almost five o'clock. So because of our schedule tonight, we had a quick bite before I got on the call. But after we get off of this, I'm not working for the rest of the evening. Actually, my husband and I are going out for a drive. We've moved to a new area. Couples invited us out. We're going to explore an ice cream shop. Great. That's good. That's excellent. Yeah. That is so ultimately important. But I yep. do want to let you loose because I know that you're, you've come prepared to talk about the ins and outs of marketing. So I'm going to let you loose for about five, six minutes to talk about that. And then we'll do a little bit of back and forth. Okay, excellent. Yeah, so and thanks for that, Kim. And I'm going to pick up on your your issue of you know having downtime and getting away from your 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 work. I love what I do. I really do. I could be on my laptop on the weekend searching for new things that like new software tools for the business, et cetera. And sometimes I have to force myself to turn that off and I have to. So there are things that I do. Even if I get up at four, I make sure that by noon I leave the external office and I go to the gym or I go for a run and running. And I've been doing that since I was a kid is very helpful in relieving stress for me. And so it allows me to navigate through these challenges, but also to keep a level head. I also sometimes just stop and play my guitar. And playing my guitar is like listening to the radio or your favorite record to a lot of people. There are songs that I've written that I just love hearing myself play over and over again. But then I've also had to take strategic days off. Like I may take a a Thursday and a Friday off, like 
once or twice a month. And I tell myself, get away from the office. Don't do anything. I've got, fortunately, now I've got people stepping in who can handle things when I'm not there. So that was a big part of me doing things where I'm not, I'm, my company isn't driving me. I'm driving my company. Okay. Yeah. And so, but going back to, you know, things that I put in the book and the reason I wrote the book was for the last 25 years or so, I've talked with a number of entrepreneurs, small business owners, and they asked me my advice. It's sort of like people going to the doctor or who's a friend or the attorney who's a friend and asking them legal or medical or healthcare questions. So people ask me my advice. And so formally and informally, I work with entrepreneurs, small business owners. And one of the things that I, I came across over and over again, not by everyone, but People sometimes think, entrepreneurs sometimes think, if you put your shingle outside your door that says open for business, everyone's going to rush to you. And that doesn't happen that way. And no. so I would constantly tell people, well, nobody cares about your business. You know, your mom might, your wife, your your husband, you know, your kids, your college roommate may love what you're doing, but most people are indifferent. And so because there's so much other stimuli, there are so many other yeah. things grabbing for their attention, you have to make an effort to carve out real estate in someone's mind. And so um, friends have told me that it's it's akin to mind control, which that's funny, but that's no, really not. It's really doing what Coke and Apple computer do. They constantly advertise, promote their brand. And if they mm -hmm. were to stop, their sales would plummet 25% overnight because yeah. people need to be reminded. We have to remind people, this is a great brand. This is a great product. This is a great service. And so that's where the book title came from. Nobody cares about your business because I, I had to tell people that over and over again. And so one of the, some of the keys to, well, how do you make people love your business then? Well, there are a number of things you have to do and outline these things in each of these chapters in the book. One book is about brand development. You have to develop a brand and a brand is not just a logo. A brand is your company, service, or product, and all the attributes associated with that company, product, or service, what people remember. So if you go to, um, there's a Brazilian restaurant that we love going to called Fogo de Chao, and it's been around for a while. They come and they slice the meat. And so their brand is, they give you as much meat as you could possibly eat if, if that's your thing. And so, and they do a pretty good job of that. And they've got excellent service, et cetera. And so their brand is if you want to eat a lot of meat, but they now have other things too, and you, you pay a flat fee for that, then go have at it. And so that's their brand. Their brand is, you know, all the meat you can eat, several different types of meat too, fish, chicken, pork, yeah. et cetera. And so- on the downside, you know, if you work for a company or if you're using a product or service where they have a horrible reputation, that's their mm -hmm. brand as well. And yes, so, exactly. And so building, a, establishing and building and growing a brand is critically important. And then I move into things such as how do you build a website? There are multiple ways to build a website. There's no one right way to do it. How do you do promoting How do you or promotion? How do you do advertising, whether it's online, whether it's traditional how to use radio, social media, and things of that nature. How do you do print production too? Mm -hmm. And so how do you create um, flyers, mugs, t-shirts, hats, and things of that nature? And so, you know, so this is sort of like a cheat sheet. Okay. So for those who don't know marketing, if you're an entrepreneur or a small business owner, and you're not familiar with marketing, this is a cheat sheet that shows you how to do certain things. And I'll, I'll give you one example. 
you and I've seen this happen a lot. People create a logo for their business. They go into Microsoft Word and they're like, hey, I just created a logo. Well, when you create a logo, you have to keep in mind that if you intend to put it on a website, you also have to keep in mind that you have to put on a put on a card, if you put it on a flyer, if you put it on a mug, a hat, or a t-shirt, you have to use different colors to achieve the same look across all channels and all platforms. You have PMS color that's like, I'm just making this up, 979. And you use that for website logo, for brochure logo, for business card logo, for hat logo, for T. It's all going to look different. So you have to use one color for print. You have to use another color for website. You have to use likely another color, depending on what it is, for producing things on a T-shirt, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so I explain these things for the readers of the book because... No one's going to explain it to you. You have to you have to sort of live through it. So I, I help readers of the book, small businesses, entrepreneurs, to sort of have that cheat sheet and say, oh, I want to do this. So this book says I should go about it this way. And so it cuts through a lot of red tape. And as I say, it cuts through a lot of BS. And being, being a marketer and having an agency and working with agencies, there are some that do a great job of cutting to the chase. There are some that do a great job of creating fluff and BS. So I prefer... Yeah. Former. It's even even things like dots per inch. You know, if you yeah. create a logo online and you put yeah. it on Facebook and you put it on your social media, that's mm-hmm. all perfectly well and good. Yes. Try to print that thing out when yeah. it doesn't have enough dots per square inch or you try to scale it to make it bigger to put it on something. Right. Right. And it looks horrible. Like you have to, you know, even let's just say you don't change the colors. Okay. Because. Yep. But even things, simple things like dots per square inch and all of those things affect how people see your brand. Because if they see this pixelated, out of scale image of your logo, it doesn't impress them. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. It makes you look like you don't know what you're doing. Even yeah. if you're, if your focus is not marketing, if you present that, it makes it look like, let's say you're a store owner or let's say you manufacture clothes or whatever. It makes you look like you don't know what you're doing if you can't get your logo right. And so that's yeah. something that entrepreneurs and solopreneurs need to keep in mind. Now, one thing, Ernie, I was wondering about, because this is something I've seriously thought about, because one of the things I teach is authority marketing. How important is it in terms of your marketing to really understand or really have a well-defined target market? Critically important. And (laughs) and this is another thing that I run across where entrepreneurs, small business owners want to cast a wide net. They want to market to everybody and their mother. And I I have to explain to, to some folks that it's best if you narrow your focus and and define a niche and target and market to them. Well, what about all these other people? And again, I go back to, and nobody cares. Okay. So you're going to spend a million dollars trying to boil the ocean, so to speak, you know, and you can't, you have to focus on those who are most likely going to be receptive to your product or service. And those who you would think at some point with a number of interactions are going to make a decision to buy from you. And that's usually a niche, a small segment of a target audience, whether it's, you know, Caucasian males between 35 and 55 or African-American women from the ages of 18 to 35 who live in the Midwest or who live in metropolitan areas or something like that. So defining your target market, my target market for receivable savvy is 
finance executives, decision makers, and managers who are on the order to cash or the supplier side, because there's multiple components to finance. You could be on the buyer side where you're handling accounts payable. You could be on the supplier side where you're handling accounts receivable. My focus is on the supplier side handling accounts receivable, and it's primarily CFOs, finance directors, et cetera, for mid-sized companies. And the reason why it's mid-sized companies and not small companies and not Fortune 500 companies is because when you, when I focus on mid-sized companies, it also, by extension, speaks to large Fortune 500 companies because they're doing similar things. Yes. It doesn't speak to small businesses because small businesses don't deal with the same thing that mid-sized businesses deal with in terms of order to cash, invoicing, et cetera. There's some overlap, but... An example would be small business is going to use QuickBooks, okay? A mid-sized company is going to use an ERP system like Oracle or NetSuite, okay? And so those are two different types of disciplines. And so we don't speak the QuickBooks accounting. Yes, exactly. And so we don't speak small business accounting language. We speak mid-size or to cash language. Yeah, I I totally get that. And, you know, the thing is, here's what I've learned, especially as a solopreneur, when you don't have a marketing team and you don't have a sales team and you're running all the hats, if your marketing is targeted and you have that specific group, first of all, it allows you to stand out more so that people actually notice you. But secondly, if, if you do that, you don't have to talk to as many people to convert a lead. So you're actually saving yourself time. And energy and a lot of no's by having that well-defined target market. And I'm going to shift gears here because we've got about maybe five minutes left. And there's a question um, that I ask every author that comes on the show. So normal listeners, you know what's coming next. (laughs) And the question is this. What was the good, the bad, and the ugly of publishing your book? Oh, boy, that's interesting. I think the I'll start with the bad and the ugly and I'll end with the good. The bad (laughs) was was really finding the time to do the editing. I wrote it a few years ago, like in one weekend. I just, you know, diarrhea of the brain where it's like I realized I should put this stuff down on paper because I'm talking to all these entrepreneurs. These things continue (laughs) to come up over and over again. This might make a good book. And so I just, you know stream of consciousness over the weekend. And I thought, this is actually pretty good, but it needs to be edited. And so I did the editing myself, hired an editor to help me edit it, et cetera. And, and then other stuff got in the way of growing a business and it sort of sat on the shelf. And so, and by the way, I was a aspiring author back in the mid nineties when I was growing my career. And that was the old fashioned way where you have to go through an agent or a publisher. So there was no Kindle publishing, okay, or Amazon publishing. And so I went putting together physical packages to send to agents, you know. So, but this time around, end of last year, I said, I have to commit myself to finishing the book because I think it'll be very helpful to people. And so beginning of this year, I spent a few months doing some additional editing, adding some new things to it because things have changed in the last few years a little bit and went the route of having it formatted and then uploading to uploading to Amazon. So the bad was it sat for a few years. Okay. The ugly, um, maybe, maybe the ugly was 
I realized that, you know, in order to get paid from Amazon, you've number one, you've got to sell a number, a good number of books. There's a threshold. And then they don't send you the money until 60 days later, you know, after you've reached that threshold. So it's like, okay, well, that's great. Hopefully nobody's relying on that to pay the mortgage. And so, but the good has been things like this. And so I have a chance, new platform and a new opportunity to talk to entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, small business owners, where I didn't have as much of a wide profile and opportunity to do this. And so I think the book has has helped some people that I know and some people that I don't know. And uh, it's everywhere I turn, there's someone saying, hey, you wrote that book that you know has that funny title. And it's like, that's great. So I, I really enjoy that. But I think the best good is that it's helping people and that it's it's an opportunity to share some of the things that I've shared with people that I know and sharing it with people that I haven't actually met or don't know. Yeah, so true. You know, you, you were saying that and, and one of the things I teach my clients, this will be the last thing before we kind of sign off, but I teach my clients that writing a book is not a field of dreams. <laughs> you know, you talk yeah. about putting out the, the sign and expecting business to come. Well, it's the same thing with publishing a book. Absolutely. If you don't market that book, nothing is going to happen. You have Absolutely. to market. becomes a marketing tool, right? Yeah. And and so many people have that concept. Oh, I'll just write a book and all this stuff comes flooding in. No, you write the book. You go through all the good, bad, the ugly of getting that book published. And yes. then the real work begins. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You've got to, you know, I, I try to leverage the fact that I'm now officially an author and with clients, with, with prospective clients, there are other, there are other organizations that I volunteer with and, and I really enjoy it. And so, because they know that I'm an author, et cetera. But you also, as you mentioned, you also have to market it. You have to market it on Amazon. If you're publishing it on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or anywhere else, I also use Facebook too. Facebook is a fantastic way to market books and it's relatively inexpensive to do it. So there are multiple methods that you should use to market your book. And I'm a big believer in, not necessarily at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, you know, if you're around family per se, unless it's unless it's a book that pertains to something like that. But I talk about it all the time to the point where I don't want to be an annoyance to people. But if the opportunity presents itself, I do talk about it. And people have said, you know what, I'm going to go out and buy your book. And so they, they do that and then they want me to sign it. So that's that's a nice to have. So, Ernie, we are out of time. So what I would love for you to do is just. If people have enjoyed this episode and they want to connect with you, how can they get a hold of you? And do you have any freebies today that the audience can enjoy? <laughs> My goodness, freebies. Well, I tell you what, I have a company website, Receivable Savvy, is receivablesavvy.com. My email address is, you can send an email to me at info at receivablesavvy.com. Uh, you can also connect with me via LinkedIn. So I've got a lot of LinkedIn connections. and so. If there are five people who come to me on LinkedIn and say, hey, I saw you on Kim's show. Can I have a free copy of your book? I will give them a free copy of the book. So it has, Ooh, to love that. it has to be the first five to do it. So if the first five do it starting, I guess, now, then you'll, you'll get a, a free copy of the book. Ernie, I love that. Thank you so much. This has been a wonderful conversation. So this has been Ernie Martin and Kim Thompson Pinder on the Author to Authority podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 
and we'll see you on the very next episode. Bye now. You've been listening to the Author to Authority podcast. The extraordinary word ninja, Kim Thompson Pinder, has helped over 200 entrepreneurs, professionals, speakers, and coaches write and publish their books that have become incredible marketing tools for their business. And many of those have gone on to become Amazon best-selling authors and have used their books to land high-level clients and get on big stages. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Make sure to like, rate, and review. And we'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit the website at www.author2authoritypodcast.com. See you next time.